Lord God, speak to our hearts this morning. Empower us through your Spirit. We have prayed, we have sung for your Spirit to be with us. We have participated, Lord, in communion. We pray now that you would illuminate our minds, that you have asked us to worship you in spirit and in truth, and to be renewed, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, Lord, that you would give us what we need this morning, and that what we hear wouldn't be just an intellectual thing or a concept or something far off from us, but it would strike to our very hearts, to the very practice of our daily lives, Lord, that you would give us what we need with wherever you put us and equip us better to live out the calling of children of God. Amen. So, over the last many weeks, the focus for the sermons has been on relationships, and I think that's a topic that any Christian should consider as integral to their self-understanding. We cannot make sense of our lives outside of the framework of community, not as Christians at least. And it is true to say that no one is saved on their own. No one is ever saved on their own. However, many do perish alone. Now today we're going to examine our calling as members of the body of Christ through the lens of our Maker, who in the words of Hebrews 12, verse 2, we recognize as the author and perfecter of our faith. When Jesus was challenged by the Pharisees for healing on the Sabbath, He responded by telling them that until now, his father had been constantly at work, and so therefore he too was working. And I believe that is our core thesis today. That's what I want us to focus on, is that God is not passive. He's not passive. He is ever moving, ever calling, ever drawing the ones he seeks. And for those who don't know him, his voice calls out amidst the din of the spiritual distractions of this world. And for those who do, He's constantly molding, transforming, consecrating our lives anew every day. You see, as Christians, we need to know this about God. We need to let this knowledge empower every bit of us. But all too often, I think we shrink from it, as if it were too grand, something too brilliant for us to endure. For how can God be that close to us? How can we, whose lives are so caught up in things that are passing away, ever appreciate an eternal God who is always after us? Now, perhaps right now, right at this very moment, there are some of you who recoiled at that thought, at the thought of a God who's, who's always after you, who, won't, who will stop at nothing to be near you. Maybe you recoiled because you want something left to yourself at the end of the day. You want to give God what you already know you can afford to lose. But keep enough distance for the things that you think you can't do without. But that won't do. God won't stop until every obstacle to His complete sovereignty has been removed from our hearts. And despite the times when we would wish for it, He won't let us go. So, about now, some of you might be saying, look, my problem isn't that I'm afraid that God is going to get involved in my life, that He's going to be too close. I struggle with feeling, just feeling His presence there at all. I feel distant. I feel far from God. 
And then that's a point well taken. Sometimes it really does feel like God is just a million miles away and that we would do anything to feel His nearness. Now, ultimately, I would argue that both the person who draws back from God's advance as well as the one who feels far from Him is just two sides of the same coin. Because it becomes a matter of perspective. When we retreat from God, we operate out of an impoverished view of who we are, His children. And when we think ourselves distant, we fail in some way to grasp who God is and therefore where to look for Him. See, that's why the first major section in your bulletins deals with what I am calling the faces of God's presence. Because I fear that many of us think of closeness with God as needing to occur in some private moment, perhaps personal prayer. But God is not nearly so limited in His methods. He does speak to us in those contexts, but He speaks to us in far more than those. I've highlighted three broad arenas in which God's power has and continues to speak to us. And when I say speak, I don't mean like when you have the television on or when you're walking down the street and you happen to overhear somebody's conversation as you pass by. It's not neutral chatter that may or may not have anything to do with us. God's speech springs from the depths of being. It's from the very heart of existence itself. It cannot but relate to us and relate to us in such a way that if we would but cease our striving and listen, we will be changed. And what I want us to keep in mind as we touch on each of these three is just how surrounded by God we really are. How if we only have eyes to see and ears to hear, we should feel so overcome by His persistent self-revealing. So the first arena I want us to consider is that of nature. Now, Paul tells us in Romans 1.20, I think in your bulletins it says 1.21, but uh, it's 1.20 is uh, the verse I want us to focus on, that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Now, this is a marvelous verse. And uh, it's interesting because the original context in which Paul wrote it, uh, if I were <laughs> to give you the preceding and following verses, it's, it's a context of judgment uh, that Paul writes it in because he's saying that folks are without excuse, that uh, you can't say to God, well, you didn't reach out to me in this particular way because Paul's saying, it's everywhere. The dynamism and the energy and the power of God is clearly visible through creation, but we don't have to see it in a context simply of condemnation, because this verse speaks to the divine traces of God's handiwork in all of creation. So for those of us who feel like we can't for the life of us feel close to God, Romans 1.20 ought to resound in our hearts as a wondrous encouragement. Rather than being in some place we just can't ever hope to discover, there is quite literally no place where His lingering glory cannot be seen. And we see this further confirmed in Acts chapter 17. So this is verses 25 through 28. So Paul is in Athens now, and he's debating the philosopher types. 
Paul says that God himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and we move and we have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So that's how beautiful is that the very air we breathe, think of how many breaths you've taken just since the beginning of church today, the very air we breathe, the cycles of nations, the movements of peoples in the world, all petition us to seek God through them. That's what Paul says. But how many of us live in the light of this truth? See, I believe that unfortunately, even as Christians, we've let that childlike wonder of our new lives wane and dwindle so that we now only see the world around us in terms of means to our ends or otherwise as obstacles in front of our goals. You know, you walk by something like a tree and we're no longer confronted by that mystery of such a stoic, calm, noble thing as trees exist at all, but we only just see it as something in between A and B, where we have to go. And much the same for a great deal else. I mean, in many ways, I think this is our sad inheritance as citizens of the modern age. We've been raised in an atmosphere where we're able to subject so much to our scientific control the strange paradox, I think, though, of this scientific mindset is that in so doing, in subjecting more and more of nature to our own control and our own devices, we have grown increasingly detached from the real heart of nature itself. We have stuck our fingers into things so much that we've muddled the fingerprints of God in His work and can now only see various objects separated from their divine purpose. But this is not how it was meant to be. There's a lovely poem by a man named Walter de la Mer, and it allegorizes this relationship between this overly scientific, or you might call scientismic, view of life and a more poetic uh, one. And uh, the poem is beautiful, and it, and it goes like this. It says, I saw sweet poetry turn troubled eyes on shaggy science, nosing in the grass, for by that way, poor poetry must pass on her long pilgrimage to paradise. He snuffled, grunted, squealed, perplexed by flies, parched, weather-worn, and near of sight, alas, from peering close where very little was, in dens secluded from the open skies. But poetry and bravery went down and called his name soft, clear and fearlessly, stooped low and stroked his muzzle overgrown, refreshed his drought with dew, wiped pure and free his eyes, and lo, laughed loud for joy to see in those gray deeps the azure of her own. So at the end of the day, poetry encourages science and lifts it up, but it's not the enemy of science. In fact, once it refreshes science, it looks and peers into its eyes and it sees that kindred spirit. 
Because the point is that science isn't evil. It's, it, it, by itself, it's not even elevated enough to be capable of that. It's just a way of seeing the world. But the problem is when we take scientific investigation and we prop that up as our own kind of idol, and we forget what in this poem is represented by poetry, which is that part of us that's on the pilgrimage to paradise. And if we get distracted and we get so caught up in controlling the here and now, we become like poor little science snuffling in the grass, peering where very little was. So scientific investigation is a valid part of how we see the world. But as Christians, we must never be satisfied with viewing the physical world around us as mere material to which we assign our own purposes arbitrarily. To do that is to commit the original sin all over again. And C.S. Lewis describes this danger very well. He writes that there is something which unites magic and applied science, technology, while separating them from the wisdom of earlier ages. For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem of human life was how to conform the soul to objective reality. And the solution was wisdom, self-discipline, and virtue. For the modern, the cardinal problem is how to conform reality to the wishes of man, and the solution is a technique. So I think we have that on a, on a slide if you'd like to read it over again as, uh, as we continue. But as Lewis puts it, those committed to using science to solve our deepest human problems are no different than the sorcerers and the necromancers of old who sought to bend nature through, to their wills through a nefarious kind of mechanism. But how refreshing in contrast to this is the Christian perspective, which sees everything in the light of its maker and conversely sees God in all things. See, for those living in that state of grace, it is as if even in the smallest ant crawling on a leaf, God is crying out to us saying, here also am I. Behold the marvelous intricacy even of this little ant, which though hardly bigger than a grain of sand, knows its place in the universe and performs so well the role that I have assigned to it. And in a far greater way than the testimony of nature, God gave us something which nature never could. As Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7 declares, this is our next sub-point. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So there's a great deal contained in this, these verses, and we could do an entire sermon series on the person of Christ and what His advent meant for us. But what I want us to focus on this morning is that the, this passage presents two phases in our redemptive process. First, God sends His Son into our lives, and this achieved for us adoption into the very family of God. 
it's very hard to depict a more drastic transition from slaves to sons and daughters. So that's the first step. But it is on this basis of our adoption that we receive the Holy Spirit. We could not receive it as slaves. Only until we ourselves were made into temples could we receive the Spirit. And the only way we could possibly be considered a temple was for God Himself to consecrate our humanity through the incarnation. Jesus was the temple here on earth. Now think of what that means for a moment. In the days of the Old Testament, there were only a select few who were given the gift of the Spirit, and it was usually the prophets. Or if you think of the priests, only a handful of priests could enter in to the Holy of Holies. It was only the high priest, once a year, offer atonement, and it was still extremely dangerous for him. Anyone else got close, it meant either something terrible or sometimes even death. You couldn't get there. But Jesus consecrated our hearts by living as a human being, and so the presence of God made his way to us. The consequence is that the Spirit has been poured out onto each and every one of us. And here's the wild part. The Spirit is with us whether we know it or not and whether we like it or not. God has made a home in us. We could not be called sons and daughters otherwise. And it's this guarantee of the Spirit that is actually the basis for our third arena of God's presence. So there is nature, there is Jesus Christ himself. The third arena is the church. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 through 18, Peter has just finished declaring that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus says, who do people say that I am? The disciples give some answers, and then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, it wasn't on the basis of Peter's humanity that the church was established, but rather on his confession, which was produced by the Father. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to Peter. It was revealed to him by the Father, and that confession is the rock of the church. Therefore, the church is no human institution. It is the fruit of the indwelling Spirit of God. Now, the word that the writers of the New Testament use to refer to uh, the body of believers is ecclesia. Uh, there's, al there's also the word that I mentioned in the communion address, which uh, is uh, kyriakon, but that occurs, I think, only twice, and it's more in passing. The common word for church is ecclesia, and this is a very rich term, which means a called-out assembly, and this is a term that the Greek world would have been no stranger to. See, an ecclesia in human terms meant people would be drawn out of their homes, called out of their homes in order to gather to conduct civil proceedings. So it was a political term. It was for governance. It was for uh, people participating democratically in their own self-government. Now, Christianity took this term to a higher level to denote those who were called out of the worldly system itself and into the abiding body of Christ. 
And so in this way, the church complements the revelation of God provided through the first two arenas that we mentioned. See, in nature, the presence of God is universal, albeit concealed beneath the surface of creation. And in Christ, the fullness of God dwelt with us bodily, transforming our humanity. And now in the church, the power of God endures through time, growing as more are adopted into the family of God. So here, the dynamism of the divine is brought to the surface, right here in the ch in church, in the church. It's shining like a bright beacon in, in the world. So we've got all of our bases covered. God has all of our bases covered in how He shows Himself to us. But now that we've identified at least these three, the question becomes a discussion of how. How does God do this? We see that God is constantly reaching out to us through creation, through the transforming life of His Son, through the persistent ministry of the church. But what is the means by which all of this is accomplished? Well, I believe that the best way to describe it is to say that it is grace. Grace is the medium in which God paints His works of art in the world. As John states in the beginning of his gospel, you have the reference in your bulletins, chapter 1, verse 16, for from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. And I love that passage. It's so simple. It doesn't just say that we receive grace, but grace upon grace upon grace. I think in the original Greek, it, the literal translation is grace in place of grace. So he keeps replacing the old grace that he gave you with the new grace, and everything, every new gift is just so overwhelming. He keeps giving you more and more and more in its place. But what then is grace? I might define grace as the direct participation of God in the life of men and women, where God manifests explicitly his presence such that the natural order of things is in some way transcended in order to yield to the higher purposes of God, there is grace. I should have that, yeah, on the, the uh, slide because that's, there's a lot packaged into that. Where God manifests explicitly His presence such that the natural order of things is in some way transcended to yield to the higher purposes of God, there is grace. Now, the proper reception of grace is predicated on the recognition that it is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. That's how you receive grace. This is crucial, and I should think it very difficult to overemphasize it. The natural you, the person whom you were born into this world as, must fade from the picture as, be as you become more aware that you are living in grace. And this is the great challenge of the Christian, of every Christian. We all have to walk this path in one way or another. It is one thing to give up particular things in life. It's another thing entirely to give up ourselves. The catch-22 of Christianity is this. You reach a point where you can no longer progress gradually. You can't go by little steps because God may prepare you by asking you to alter this or that part of your life. But there comes a day where he asks you to give up not a thing or a habit or a desire, but your very self. From that point, there is no going back. You cannot hedge your bets. 
Because true grace isn't a function of your abilities. And if you are to become what God wills you to be, the final obstacle that needs to be removed from the process is yourself, precisely because God seeks to make you into something higher than yourself. There's a, a video clip, if, if, we can, if, if we can get to work, fingers crossed, um, that I'd like us to watch right now. And uh, this is an interview uh, with a singer, kind of a folk country singer, whose name is Chris Smither. And uh, in this interview, you're going to see the interviewer asks him about his personal life and what he's gone through and um, how he's overcome some of his struggles. And I want us to pay attention of, of what he says, what he says about grace and what he says about coming to the end of yourself. You know, a lot of us have had really dark self-destructive periods in our yeah. lives and, um, and are fortunate to have come out of them. Can you tell me, I know you had several years that were... were oh, more than several. <laughs> Can you tell me about that period, how it affected your music and how you got out of it? Well, you know, drinking, in my case, it was alcohol. Um, see, that's one of the things I learned from the blues guys. Right. <laughs> you know, I just just drinking the way my heroes drank. Right. You know, and um, these things have a way of taking over in a, in a most insidious fashion. And uh, I look at it as you know, I went, I got sick. You know, I just got sick, and I didn't know what I had for a long time, and most of these, uh, most of the revelations that one has about, especially addictive diseases, have been repeated endless times, and everybody has heard them. But you know, to encapsulate it very briefly, you know, you feel that your very disease is the only thing that's holding you together. Mm -hmm. You know, it's your only friend, the only thing that's left. And then you finally, one way or another meet people who can tell you what the truth is and you usually have to to be at a point where you're ready to listen to anything. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I got out of it, to tell you the truth. I don't know why some people get better and some people don't. I know for a fact that it has nothing to do with being smart or being virtuous or being good or right. being strong. Mostly I just feel lucky, you know. If I were a Christian or a religious person of any sort, I'd say that it was grace, but I'm not, so I don't know what to call it. <laughs> um, so, he's, uh, he's, his music is great, and uh, and he's just very frank and very and very honest. You know, if if you didn't catch some of the things he says, you know, he says when you're in an, caught in this addictive behavior, you know, you the very low point of that is you think that your own addiction is the only thing that's holding you together. It's the only friend you have. And then to get out of it, you have to come to a point where you're willing to listen to just about anybody. And he described that process, I think, very honestly. He says, uh, you know, if I were a Christian or a religious person, I'd call it grace. But I'm not, so I don't know what to, <laughs> what to call it. So, you know, I feel like he's, he I diagnosed it, the situation beautifully. Unfortunately, he just doesn't share the conviction, but he's at least honest about it. Um, so again, he says some great things, uh, Chris Smither, in that interview. Um, I believe that we can read or listen to what he's saying at a spiritual level as well. 
we reach a point where we believe that we are the only things holding our lives together. And that the only solution to that is to reach a point of humility where we are willing to hand over the reins and listen to God Himself. And God isn't just standing around waiting for you to come to that revelation. I was recently reading a passage in Isaiah that struck me so deeply, and it describes this willingness of God to lay low His own people so that they will allow Him to be the one to lift them up. And uh, it's from Isaiah uh, chapter 29, verses 1 through 7, and I'd just like to read the whole thing because there's a poetic form to it, and so verses 1 through 7, uh, Isaiah's writing the voice of God speaking through Isaiah, and he's referring to Jerusalem as Ariel, which is a, um, a word that means possibly lion of God or victorious of God or something like that. It's another name for Jerusalem. So he says, ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Yet I, this is God speaking, will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around, and I will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you. And you will be brought low, from the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and with great noise, with whirlwind and a tempest and the flame of a devouring fire, and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her, shall be like a dream, like the vision of a night. See, that's a powerful, powerful passage. God brings His people low. He brings their enemies lower. He brings us down to the very level of the dust, but our enemies become like small dust. The forceful truth of this passage is that God will lay siege to your life for your own sake. You will be laid low, and only then will God Himself visit you and dispel the power of your enemies. This is the real tragedy of humanity because so many will not yield to the pursuit of God. And some, lost in the abyss of despair, will barricade themselves in their own tombs to prevent God from entering in. The following is a long quote, but it captures perfectly. The, I know there's a lot of quotes and references today, but uh, they need to be there. <laughs> uh, it just captures perfectly the psychology of the one who values ownership of his own life above all else, including the presence of God within him. This is, should be no surprise for those who've heard my other sermons, from Soren Kierkegaard in uh, his book, Sickness Unto Death. Soren writes, the more consciousness there is in such a sufferer who in despair wills to be himself, the more his despair intensifies and becomes demonic. 
It usually originates as follows. A self that in despair wills to be itself is pained in some distress or other that does not allow itself to be taken away or separated from his concrete self. So the pain of this person becomes so ingrained in who they are that they begin to identify with it. So now he makes precisely this torment the object of all his passion. And finally, it becomes a demonic rage. By now, even if God in heaven and all the angels offered to help him out of it, no, he does not want that. Now it is too late. Once he would gladly have given everything to be rid of his agony, but he was kept waiting. Now it is too late. Now he would rather rage against everything and be the wronged victim of the whole world and of all life. And it is of particular significance to him to make sure that he has his torment on hand and that no one takes it away from him. For then he would not be able to demonstrate and prove to himself that he's right. This eventually becomes such a fixation that for an extremely strange reason, he's afraid of eternity. Afraid that it will separate him from his demonically understood infinite superiority over other men his justification, demonically understood, for being what he is. Very, very deep and very rich. If I were to summarize Kierkegaard's words, I would say this. Our desire to own our own lives comes at the price of forsaking real love. You have to be free from yourself in order to love others. This is not simply a problem for non-Christians, by the way. There are a good deal of believers who, though they have been regenerated in Christ and have received the Holy Spirit, are hardly conscious of it and therefore are still largely preoccupied with self-ownership. Now, I challenge you, all of you, to ask yourselves this morning, am I such a Christian? Remember, the beginning Christian prays to be spared from harm and trouble in this life, but the mature Christians pray that no hardship will be spared them if it means bringing greater glory to themselves and to their Father in heaven. So we come now to a conclusion by considering the fruits of attending to the revelation of God and responding to His grace. In your bulletins, you have two verses uh, listed, which uh, I'll, I'll read. They're shorter than the others. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the first. Here Paul's talking about the, uh, the resurrection and what we have to look forward to. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment... In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So keep that one in mind, then just flip over to the next page, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, all going to be changed, all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, perhaps it would help us appreciate what Paul has written with a little bit of perspective. Looking back, I believe it is fair to say that mo the most that anyone in the times of the Old Testament could have hoped for or to aspire to, 
was righteousness. That's my opinion. I think that's what uh, I would peg it as. To be considered just and honorable in the sight of God. That's as far as their, the capacity reached for what they understood their relationship to God to amount to. But that expectation underwent a fundamental evolution with the incarnation, the resurrection, and the glorification of Jesus Christ. For now, our destiny is not merely to be right with God, but we are to be elevated alongside Christ. And this is why the New Testament is just replete with all these references. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, it says, talking about Jesus, that He's not ashamed to call us brothers. It would have been, prior to the resurrection maybe, a shameful or even a blasphemous thing to talk about God in that way, to say that God's my, my brother. That, that would have been maybe a very vulgar thing to say. But not now that Christ has come among us. We're also called co-heirs with Christ, full, equal recipients of everything that He's entitled to. And in John chapter 1, it's written, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the power to become children of God. So there's hardly any more ways to say it. We're brothers, we're sisters, we're heirs, we are children, we are in the family. So in short, we are destined for glory. God seeks after us so that through Him, we might become kings and queens, radiant and powerful. Now, do you feel that today? Amen. Yeah, good. <laughs> I was going to say, so maybe if we haven't had our coffee yet, we don't feel particularly radiant. But goodness, ask yourselves, do you feel that? Do you know in your hearts that your fate is more than just avoiding condemnation? Is that what we're preoccupied so often as Christians with just, of course, that's the tremendous gift is remission of sins, but that's the beginning of the journey. That's not the end. And so often we treat it like it's the end. We stop there. Are you living to prepare yourself for the royal authority to be shared with Christ? The original sin was to strive to be like God on our own terms, rather than rely on God to know good and evil in our own fashion. It was a sin for man to desire to be God. But God is permitted to desire for man to be as God. We see this pattern mirrored in many ways between the Old and the New Testaments. It was a sin for man to desire to ascend to heaven through the Tower of Babel. And so God cursed humanity with confusion among many languages. But God desired all peoples to be elevated and gave the gift of tongues at Pentecost, not for division, but for reconciliation. The sins of man had accumulated such that God judged the world with a flood, preserving only Noah and his family. But so that there could be remission of sins, God gave His children baptism, so that through water many might be saved. What we meant for destruction, God intends for our glorification, working all things together for good to those He has called. He does this because He loves us, and that doesn't go far enough. He does this because He is love itself, and love will have its own. Truly, we cannot do without Him, but He won't do without us. He pursues and pursues and pursues, and He won't ever stop. Amen. Now and forever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Let's pray.
Father God, I pray that we are laid low by the humbling doctrine that you are a God who pursues, who seeks after us, who spares no expense to reach into our lives and to our hearts, that we, through no merits of our own, are entitled to something so wonderful, that we get to be in your family, Lord, that we get to be co-heirs with Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be blessed with a renewed understanding of what that could possibly even mean for us here and now, with our preoccupations in the here and now, the preoccupations and distractions that keep us bogged down in thinking of small and petty things. I pray, Lord, that we would embrace our high calling as children of God, as royalty, as those destined for authority in eternal, an eternal world with you. Lord, I lift up everyone this morning and I pray for your blessings and your mercies for them throughout the week until we see each other again. I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.